People that are successful in this job are people that go places and sit. You cannot do it behind a desk. You can't do it through email. You can't do it through the phone. You have to go sit down and get in somebody's face. Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam M. Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College, and welcome to the Be Epic Podcast. Today I have with me Chuck Bauer, who is with NCAP Investments, and he heads up uh, fundraising and also uh, investor relations. Thank you so much, Chuck, for joining me today. I appreciate it's it. Great to be here. Great to be on campus as well. Beautiful campus in Northwest Arkansas. Isn't it? It's amazing. Absolutely. Although, unfortunately, you came on a kind of a cloudy day. It's usually sunny here and in perfect weather, but... <laughs> Well, I told my son, who's touring here today, that if you can like it on a cold, windy, and rainy day, the, those days when it's 75 degrees and sunny, it's going to be the best place on earth. Absolutely, it really is. Well, Chuck, I'm really thrilled to have you. You know, within most business schools, there is less emphasis, I think, on alternative investments, first of all. There needs to be more because it's becoming more and more important in the financial system. But even within the alternative investment category, and for those listening, alternative investments include things like seed funding, venture funding, uh, private equity, these kinds of things. But even within that, to the extent they are covered, many times we don't cover fundraising. And that is a critical part, and it's an area that you have expertise. Uh, and so I want to talk to you about that today. But before I do, would you tell us a little bit about NCAP Investments? Yeah, certainly. Happy to do it. NCAP's a 35-year-old private investment firm focused on North America energy markets uh, with offices in Houston, San Antonio, and Oklahoma City. We have three verticals, three investment verticals, three distinct teams that focus on three distinct parts of the energy value chain. So we have a team that invests in the upstream segment of the energy value chain, team that focuses on midstream, and a team that focuses on energy transition, primarily around the decarbonization of the power grid, greenfield opportunities around wind, solar, and utility-scale energy storage. Midstream would be the pipeline systems, gathering, processing, treating, compression, uh, all of those things that after you capture the hydrocarbon at the wellhead, you've got to move it and get it to a market to be sold or to the end user. The upstream companies are uh, the ones that are out there drilling for natural gas or oil. Uh, and so we, we back companies, so we raise capital, create a fund, and then those funds ultimately uh, back portfolio companies that we build and grow and then and hopefully become a strategic asset that someone else will want. We can sell that business to them over time. Does each time you, each time you raise a fund, does that fund focus on one of those three areas or a combination of them? That's right. There are three distinct funds okay. that we have. And so they don't, you know, there's, there's not crossover. Um, and so the, the individual investment teams within NCAP are focused on their own specific vertical. Uh, and so they're closed-end funds. They're typically 10 years in life. So they're, they fit right in the middle of that alternative investment category that you referenced. Um, and they're an illiquid asset for investors. Uh, and it's a, as you suggest, it's a growing area of the market. It's been a growing area of the market over the last 17 years, and an important one 
for public pensions, for sovereign wealth funds, for insurance companies, uh, healthcare institutions, college endowments and foundations. A lot of college, you know, college endowments and foundations actually really were one of the leaders in the alternative investment space. One of the people that came out uh, following David Swenson at Yale and the model that he put together really was the endowment model of investing, you know, where probably 30 to 40 percent of the capital goes into illiquid investments. He was the one that pioneered that, I think, back in the 70s and maybe early 80s. I'm not sure when he did it, but maybe in the early 80s. Um, and the, this whole organization, whole industry has developed uh, over time. So, Chuck, since a key part of the purpose of this uh, recording is to fill in the gaps around fundraising and specifically with alternative investments, would you talk to us a little bit about how that process works and your experience with it? Yeah, certainly. I think it's, it's really a, there's a, I'm going to talk about two parts. One is the personal relationship side or the, or the relationship side of that business. And then two is fundamentally the process of that business, the actual fundraising that takes place. And so you'll have a firm that just has decided they're going to raise capital to pursue, uh, to, to build a fund, to pursue investments in a specific sector, a specific strategy. They will need to go identify sources of capital. Those sources of capital of what I've talked about historically could be public pension plans, could be college foundations and endowments, healthcare institutions, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, high net worth individuals who are all looking to deploy a portion of their balance sheet or a portion of the assets that they have under management into alternative investments. And so it's important that you have someone within the firm or the leadership of the firm that begins establishing relationships with these groups, helping them understand and identify who you are, what you do, why you're differentiated in the market, how what your product is going to be different than other things that they have, why you're better positioned in this market to take advantage of the opportunity set, and create value for your investors. You know, you're, what you're selling to them ultimately is a 10-year illiquid investment. It's not, you're not selling them public equities that they can trade in and out of. If, you make a if they make a determination they don't want to be with you anymore, they can't trade out of it the next day. There is a secondary market for it, but that takes time to sell. You sell at a discount, and sometimes it's not an avid, not a very advantageous exit for you. And so these people want to earn your trust, and they want to know that who they're investing with, they're going to be in partnership with you for at least 10 years. And most of these funds, even though they're 10-year funds, take 12 and 13 and 14 years to ultimately wind down. And so it's a very important that you, you have one-on-one -on -one relationship time with those individuals who are ultimately making the investment decision. So what, what, what begins with that is you'll put together some type of a pitch book or deck PowerPoint presentation that kind of outlines some of those things I just talked about. Who you, who you are, what your investment strategy is, what differentiates you against your competition, why, what is the market opportunity, what are the types of investments you're going to make, maybe some case studies of what you've done. And then most importantly, what is your track record? What have you done in the history of your career, whether if this is the first time you're creating a fund or whether you've had multiple funds, to go and demonstrate to that investor that you have the experience, you have the team that can go deliver the type of returns that you're advertising in your, in your pitch book. And so you take that pitch book and then you'll begin you know, calling investors, 
going out and seeing them. Uh, you have an official legal document called a private placement memorandum, which outlines the investment thesis, and you have legal documents surrounding it called a limited partnership agreement and subscription documents. And then you have a you you go meet with an investor the first time. They're likely going to engage in some form of due diligence, and you have to prepare. They will have a lot of questions. They'll require information, and you have to fulfill those data requests and help understand and shepherd them through the process. So at the end of the day, they're going to have an investment committee. They're going to have trustees, likely. They're going to have to answer to. And so determining what is their process, what does it take for them to get to a decision, but also importantly, what is the timetable? How long does it take someone to get from an introductory meeting to ultimately making a decision? And that's vastly different from a family office who has a sole decision maker to a large public pension who, has, who doesn't move at the same rate that a family office could move. It could be a six to nine month process with the state of California, the state of Florida, the state of Arkansas, very different than dealing with someone who invest money for the Walton family, as an example. Let's take a couple of examples. A university endowment foundation. How do you contact the right people? How do you find them? How do you develop a relationship with them and approach them? Certainly. Yeah, it's definitely evolved over the, I've been doing this for 17 years now, so it's evolved over 17 years. Certainly technology has helped immensely. There are databases that you can purchase uh, online databases that are services that call the University of Arkansas and find out what they're interested in, who the people are that work there, who covers what asset classes. And so that's probably the biggest help is to be able to go out and uh, utilize a database to figure out who's the right person to call. Secondarily, they're public, you know, anything that's public, a public university, public pension plans, most of them are required by state law to have a lot of that, that information online. And so you can go cull public records to determine who to call. And I would guess, since you've been doing this for 17 years, you probably know a lot of these people. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, a big part of business school, a big part of the education you gain, not is not just within the classroom, but it's learning how to network, learning how to communicate, learning how to build relationships with people within the business school today that will benefit you for life. And that is understanding that a lot of the people that I talk to today ultimately come from referrals uh, or determining, hey, I need to get, I need to find somebody at the University of Arkansas to talk to who might I know that is connected to that person that could facilitate an introduction for me? Because we, all, we know in our personal lives, if a, your friend calls you and asks you, hey, will you take a phone call from my friend? You're much more willing to take, accept that phone call than if some, someone cold calls you, uh, you may likely ignore it or never respond to it. So that's, that's a critical networking and building relationships that you can then lean on throughout your career uh, is a critical component of, of the success in this role. And in so many roles, I know many of our most successful alumni, and I would think that almost all of them are quite good at developing relationships and maintaining relationships. And you know, it's more than just meeting someone. It's learning how to relate to them and then stay in contact. That takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Yes. Takes a lot of work. One's communications key, uh, following up on what you said you're going to do, delivering on what you said you're going to do, 
is key. If someone asks you for information and whether you have to determine how do I remember how to do that? Do I need to write that down? Can I remember it in my head? Uh, when do I need to follow up? How often do I follow up without becoming a pest to them? Um, all of those things are, are critical. And then over time, you'll learn that uh, it's, in, you'll learn things about that person. You'll want to then, the next time you communicate with them, ask them uh, what was important in that last meeting. Talk about your family, talk about their family, those things that can relate to you. And the most important part I've, I've learned probably in my 17 years as I've matured and, and my career's evolved is to become a good listener. And I would tell you most of the times I meet somebody for the first time, 95%. If I'm going to talk about NCAP, a meeting for NCAP, the first time I've met somebody, my goal is for 95% of the conversation not to be about NCAP. I want to learn about that. I want to learn about their program. I want to learn about the institution. I want to learn about that person so I can understand what their needs are, what they're trying to, to accomplish within their, in their institution, and how we might complement that. Uh, and the NCAP stuff can come, like, if I'm successful in that first meeting, then I'm definitely going to get the second meeting where we can spend time talking about NCAP. You know, that's true in all kinds of sales as well. And even in interviewing for jobs, you know, a lot of times I think when people are interviewing for jobs, they want to just spill everything out in terms of what they're good at, what they've accomplished. But, uh, you know, a lot of times it's, you're better off asking questions and learning about the person interviewing you. Sometimes uh, they will hire you based on, they'll talk themselves into it in some cases. Yeah. So when you're raising funds like this from, say, a big pension, public pension, versus a, a home office. To your point, the processes take different lengths of time, and I would imagine that you have to do a lot of nurturing uh, of the process for something like a, a large pension fund that is has more bureaucracy to deal with, more policies, and uh, even state laws in some cases, and regulations. So. Those are two very different situations. How do you manage them differently? What do you do? Yeah, part of it is, as you suggest, you really have to understand their process. You can't, you need to understand, and, and I will tell you in many cases when dealing with an entity or an organization that's gonna move slower or has more bureaucracy, has more steps that they have to get to through an approval process, many times it's, Let's go set a date, a goal of when we're going to be finished. And then let's work backwards and create some key milestones. And I'm talking if you've gotten to the point where you know that that individual that you're working with at that institution is going to move forward, going to engage in diligence. They're going to take this forward with a, with a goal towards committing capital to the fund you're raising. Then let's go say that you want to be finished by October the 15th. What are the key milestones that we need to, to hit so that we can make sure that we're on target to hit October the 15th? And the reason I say that is, you know, in some of these institutions, the legal side, so you've gotten a, an official commitment out of a board of trustees at a public pension plan, well, some of their, there may be a legal review that takes three or four months. So if you know you have to have this by October the 15th, and you, you know you better be through committee by June the 30th or July the 15th, or you're not going to hit that, that target. Now, family office, as we just discussed, you could go sit down with the principal 
have a cup of coffee. And as you, even like you were talking about in a job, it's almost like a job interview, right? If that person trusts you, they believe in the sector you're investing in, they may, they may make a commitment on the spot and they could turn legal documents in, in two days, you know? And so it's really, it's really the key is understanding the process that the people that you're working with have to go through. Also recognizing, and something that I, that I have to continue to remind myself every day is the stuff I'm calling them about isn't, I'm not the only person they're working on, I'm not the only person they're talking to. And so they're being torn in 20, 30, 40 different directions on a daily basis. So there's, you, you need to learn to be patient and guide them and help them and determine what are some steps, things that I can do to help alleviate any challenges you're having getting the work accomplished. Now, as an example, you know, this person may have to write an investment committee memo and they may, getting the time to dedicate to writing the investment memo may be challenging for them. So maybe you can send them some examples uh, that they can cut and paste certain portions of uh, so that'll help them, you know, make that an easier process for them. So there's certain, you know, things that you can help along the way. Can't write it for them, obviously, but you can help provide them some guidance on it. Back to the large public pension fund. In addition to being a good relationship builder, a good listener, you've got to be a good project manager in that case, it sounds like. And there's lots of tools to help with project management. You're talking about if they have a deadline at a certain point, then they need to be through some other milestone before they get to that point. You have to think about the milestones and uh, the key events that need to occur um, and tasks that need to be done. How long will those tasks take? That sounds fairly complicated with some of these uh, funds. And I would imagine many of them have different rules and regulations. So you have to adjust your project, I'm calling it a project, based on the, the fund. So that takes a lot more time. And so I'm thinking about it from a, re, a, a ROI perspective. You know, if you can get a family office and, you know, make a decision more quickly, that could be a higher ROI on your time. But on the other hand, the big public pension funds have more money usually. So the matter of scale as well, right? So a big public pension could write a hundred to three hundred million dollar commitment. A family office might write a five to ten million dollar commitment. So it's also an allocation of time, allocation of resources. And really the, the what I love about what I do and the role that I play is it really touches upon many of the disciplines within the business school. We're not we're not one discipline focused. So there's a huge component of my job that's communications. There's a huge component that's sales and marketing, but there is project management. There's, uh, you've got to understand the business law in many cases, the regulations, the rules you have to operate by. Back to your point, you, you know, there are some people that want to be, go have dinner. Like they would prefer to have that conversation in a social setting, that initial conversation in a social setting, a family office or someone like that. Uh, they're comfortable in that environment. Well, there are a lot of people that work for a public university or a public pension that have rules that prohibit them from even accepting a bottle of water in your office or a cup of coffee. Uh, and so you have to understand that regulation. Uh, you have to understand if you want to do business in the state of California, you have to go register as a lobbyist. 
if you want to do business in LA, you have to go register as a lobbyist in the, in the city of Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, there's, there's just so many dynamics around that entire role that it's really interesting, uh, interesting to see how many portions of the business school and what you learned in business school, you're actually now applying in that role. At what point did you realize this would be a strength of yours to manage something like this? Yeah, well, interestingly, I, I began my career in politics. So I was a political science major, uh, graduated from TCU in 1994, uh, immediately went to work for a gentleman running for Congress, um, and knew that I, kind of my base skill set was relationship development. I knew I could communicate. Uh, I was pretty natural at developing relationships with people. And so I became, uh, spent 11 years working for the congressman, you know, speaking at Rotary Clubs, Chambers of Commerce on his behalf, cutting ribbons and getting to know people in the district. Uh, but then I identified that this was, there was a role of raising capital uh, in financial firms that I didn't really, at that, until that point, I didn't realize the role existed. And so I, put a, I correlated the fact that what I do for the congressman, and being his person in the district and, and being out kind of in front of him, being his flag bearer, I guess, carrying his story in the district and being the flag bearer for a financial firm and telling their story, rather, but not in a congressional district, but around the world to just a different audience, um, was very similar, actually. And the process of raising capital was similar to the process of running for office. And so uh, I put those two together and some people said, you know, you need to go back to business school. So I went back and got my MBA and, and then ultimately found a job uh, with a firm in Dallas and have now been doing that for 17 years. It's amazing how many people really pivot through an MBA. MBAs are a great way to pivot Absolutely. Uh, into business. So it seems to me, and I'm no expert on this, but it seems to me that the number of family offices has increased dramatically uh, over the past 30 years. Is that, have you noticed that? Is that true? Yes, yeah. They're, every day we see more and more uh, family offices that are becoming interested in alternative investments, particularly. So there's probably, is there a database out there for family offices or how do you find them? They're, they're trickier. It's a trickier universe to uncover. Uh, a lot of them don't want to be identified. A lot of them want to do direct deals. They don't want to invest in funds. A lot of them, if you think about the, the genesis of their wealth, uh, in most cases, it's an entrepreneur that took risk, built a business, and sold it mm -hmm. to someone and, and created a generational amount of wealth that now he or she needs to manage. And they want to create capital preservation and, and then wealth create, continue wealth creation. Um, there is a database out there uh, that, you, that we utilize uh, that does a really nice job of uncovering family offices. But typically that is a place where networking and word of mouth referrals is going to be the key to success. Because uh, once they, you know, if they've done business with you, they like what you've done, then they'll, they'll want to make sure their friends have an opportunity to, or people that they've done deals with will have an opportunity to look at what you're doing as well. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us about fundraising for alternative investments. I'm sure there's many students listening that have 
not really thought about that as an option, but they're probably geared towards that naturally and others that might be interested in it after listening to this. So I really appreciate you explaining this. Thanks. Glad to be here. I think you're going to be stuck with me for four more years. So anytime you need me to come to campus or our students or, or anybody that wants to learn more about the role that investor relations and fundraising plays within the business community on the private investment side, I'm very happy to spend more time uh, helping the Walton School of Business. On behalf of the Sam M. Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic, B-E-E-P-I-C.